Our scripture this morning will be coming from the gospel according to John chapter 1, verse 14 through 17. And you are welcome to stand during the reading of the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, as we approach your word now, would you indeed do what this text has already said, give us grace upon grace. We want to receive it as spiritual nourishment today to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel and then also to have our hearts transformed in light of what we see in John chapter 1. So come now and give us grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't been able to tell, our theme for today is grace. <laughs> grace, grace, grace all over the place. So last week we talked about extravagant grace. This week we're talking about extravagant grace. And next week we're talking about extravagant grace because one of our church's core values is this idea of extravagant grace. But even more than that, it just seems right that those who've experienced the beauty of the transforming grace of Jesus, that we who've received this grace ought to be the experts, if you will, in extravagant grace. Our world understands the beauty of self-sacrifice, but the church should understand that even better than the world. It was Jesus who said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. So at a bare minimum, even if someone doesn't understand the gospel, even if you're here today and you don't know what the gospel is, you understand that to give your life for somebody else is the, the ultimate expression of love, the ultimate expression of honor. By the way, that's why we have Veterans Day tomorrow, to honor those who put themselves in harm's way. And by the way, if you're a, a veteran, I'd like just to have us recognize you this morning. Would you stand so we can just say thank you a moment to those of you who served in the armed forces? So to selflessly give yourself is an incredible gift. And yet the church of Jesus Christ should understand this better than anyone else on the planet. And so today we want to talk again about this idea of extravagant grace, in particular extravagant grace in your life. And what I want to do is to, to link John chapter 1 and the fullness of Jesus and what it means to have this grace upon grace extended to us because of the fullness of Jesus. Our elders have defined extravagant grace this way. Why don't you read this aloud with me? We desire to be a community of believers who treat others with the same extravagant grace that God has lavished upon us. We yearn to demonstrate this grace through our church culture and our lives in a way that is transparent, real, and helpful. We are blessed to be a blessing to each other, the city of Indianapolis, and the world. 
See, as a church, we want to be sure that we model this beautiful thing called extravagant grace. And John chapter 1 is what we'll be looking at today. I invite you to take your Bibles if you haven't turned there already. And look with me just for a moment at John chapter 1 and verse 16, because that's the, the primary verse that we're going to be focusing on. And it says this, And from his fullness, from his fullness, meaning Jesus, from the fullness of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. So today what I want to do is connect two things. I want to connect the fullness of Jesus to grace in your life. I want to show you how the fullness of Jesus has become a fountainhead from which grace flows to you. And then, at the end, I want to challenge you to see life through this, this fullness lens, if you will. So first, let's look at this thing of the, the fullness of Jesus. What is this, this fullness? We're going to look at John. We're going to go over to the book of Colossians. We're going to end in the book of Ephesians. It's going to be all over the New Testament today, looking at a number of passages that identify both the fullness of Jesus and what the implications are for us. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What does this mean? Well, in order to understand this phrase, you have to go back up to verse 1. Verse 1 is written in a way that sounds very similar to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. And John's whole purpose in writing this gospel is so that when you hear the stories of Jesus, you'll believe, and in believing, you'll have life in his name. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you're trying to figure out what are the claims of Christ, what's the gospel all about, what is this communion thing that just happened, and I'm so glad you're here if that's where you're at. There's one thing you could do that would really help you in your journey, and that's read the gospel of John. Because John's entire purpose in writing this account of Jesus' life is so you can see the stories, hear what he says, and come to believe that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, and that by believing in him you might have life in his name. That's the whole point of the gospel. So John chapter 1 begins and it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does this text tell us about the fullness of Jesus? Well, in the first place it tells us that Jesus was fully God. That's the point. He was in the beginning, verse 2 says, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Last week we talked about the fact that the gospel is the root of extravagant grace, that, that sinners need grace, that we live in a broken world. And I, I imagine that somewhere in the course of the last week you saw the brokenness of the world. I mean, the brokenness of the world just exists in the bad things that we do. It exists in the tragedies that happen. It's, it's even this thing as, as, as big and as large as a 230-mile-an-hour wind-laden typhoon that hit the Philippines. We live in a broken world. Something's wrong with our world. Sinners need grace. Our world is broken because of sin. We talked about that last week. And then Jesus brings grace. And then the beautiful message of the Bible in the gospel is that grace wins. In other words, no matter how big, how bad, how great, how significant sin and brokenness is in the world, that at the end of the day, Jesus has begun the process of bringing everything back to the way it's supposed to be. He's fully God. All things were made by him, for him, and through him, and the light shines in the darkness. And aren't you glad the Bible says this? And the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you are here today and it feels like the darkness is overwhelming. And I get it. I know life can be really hard and your own sin can be really entrenched. Consequences of people's bad actions can have long-lasting consequences. But I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's Word that at the end of the day, the darkness does not win and the light overcomes darkness at the end of the day. 
He is fully God. From his fullness, fullness. What does his fullness mean? It means he's fully God. Secondly, it means that he is full of redemption. We find a a great summary of the gospel in verses 9 to 13. Verse 9 says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That light, that's Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Here's a great paradox in the Bible, that the creator comes to the created. The creator comes to the creation, and the creation doesn't know him. But it gets even worse. He came into his own, that, that word in the Greek means his own things, his own created order, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, more than that, the story of the Bible is that they not only didn't receive him, they rejected him and crucified him and killed him. But then verse 12, here's the hope. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Meaning that when you understand who Jesus is and you understand who you are by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, you believe in his name. And in that moment, God does something miraculous. He gives you the right to become his child. He welcomes you into his family. He adopts you into his home. And then he says, verse 13, who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, God does something supernatural inside of you that you couldn't do in and of yourself. So while you believe and while you receive, it's God who does the regenerating work. It's God who does the the renewal inside of you such that when you receive Christ, it means that something inside of you has fundamentally changed. That Jesus is not only full of God, He's not only fully God, but he's also full of redemption. Third, John 1 also tells us that he's full of glory. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Jesus became a man and dwelt among us. Those of you who were here for our study of Exodus, it's the idea of tabernacle. He came and and moved in among us. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And then John says this, and we have seen his glory. There was something, there was something about Jesus. Maybe John had in mind the transfiguration, maybe just the way that he dealt with, with sinners, how he dealt with the Pharisees, how his words seemed to have such authority and power. We have seen his glory And then he says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, there was no difference between the Son's glory and the Father's glory. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John's point is that Jesus had glory, and not just some kind of glory. Jesus had the very glory of the Father. God's glory was the Son's glory. And whatever glory the Father possesses, the Son also shares and displays. So, Again, his fullness. What does this fullness mean? It means he's, he's fully God. It means he's full of redemption. It means he's full of glory. Verse 14 also gives us another thing. He's full of grace and truth. John describes this glory. He describes the image of the Son, describes what he sees, captures the essence of what Jesus is all about, and he says he is full of grace and truth. Aren't you grateful that Jesus is full of grace and truth? To be full of truth means that he tells it like it is. The Bible tells us who we are. The Bible tells us that God is holy and we're not and tells us that that's a problem, a huge problem, an eternal problem. The Bible is clear and honest and straightforward that the problem 
It's not your upbringing. It's not those around you. It's not your culture. It's, it's not your parents or the home that you were raised in. It's not all the things that happened to you. All those things may be a problem, but they're not the problem. The problem is that our hearts are set on wickedness. They are set on evil. That the heart is a wonderful, terrible idol factory. And the Bible tells us that. And Jesus tells us that. And at the same time, he doesn't just tell us that. He also says, if anyone come to me, he can be a new creation. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's full of grace. Most of us are either full of grace or full of truth, but we're not full of both at the same time. In fact, most couples, as I've gotten to know them and think of that in my own life, you have typically one spouse's grace and the other's truth, and they make a good balance. If you're both gracious, that's great. You just have really nice people, but no one ever tells the truth in your home, right? <laughs> or if you're both really truthful, that's, that's really exciting, right? So it's, <laughs> at least we're honest, and that's true. At least you're honest, right? So, but Jesus is the beautiful combination of grace and truth. He tells it like it is, and yet he's also full of grace. Meaning, that no one possessed this beautiful combination of grace and truth more than Jesus did. Now, that's John's description. He's full of God, fully God. He's full of redemption. He's full of glory. He's full of grace and truth. Take your Bibles now. Let's see what Paul says. Let's go to Colossians 1.19. I want you to show you that, I want to show you that Jesus is also full of divine authority. I traced this idea of fullness both in our lives and in Jesus' life all over the New Testament this week. It was a great journey, great journey. And Paul says nearly the same thing that, that John does. He just says it a little differently. In Colossians 1.19, here's, here's Paul's summary. He says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's John's, or that's Paul's summary of what John says in John chapter 1 of, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. But he says verse 19 because of what is found in verses 15 through 18. So verse 19 summarizes verses 15 through 18. Let's read verse 15 through 18 then. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You get that? There's not anything on planet earth that wasn't made by him or for him. Everything is from Christ, to Christ, and for Christ. It's all about him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not only the creator, he's also the sustainer. Verse 18, what's more, he is the head of the church, his body. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and here's why. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So at the end of the day, it's all about the preeminence of Jesus. From creation to redemption, he holds it all together. He has created everything that's in the world, and all things exist for his glory and for his honor. So out of the fullness of all of what he is, Paul then says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell there is coming a day, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that in the future, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
when all of creation will bend its knee either in the confession of their belief in Christ as Lord and Savior or in their confession as judge that indeed He is Lord. He's full of divine authority. Finally, on this fullness of Christ, He's also full of all wisdom and knowledge. Look at Colossians 2 and verse 2. The second part of the verse says this. Let's read the first part. Colossians 2, 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And then here's the, the phrase we want to grab. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Christ. It's amazing. So Paul's aim is he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So, so the, the knowledge of what is God doing in the world? What is the, the, the summit, the, the top of everything that God is doing? What's God doing? The answer is Christ. That's what he's doing. To be able to redeem the world to himself. Now, now why is Paul saying that? He's saying that because there was a temptation that the church at Colossae was falling into, that they were trying to be convinced by some heretical teachers that there were other things they needed to add to their relationship with God beyond Christ, that, that Christ was sort of elementary, and then there were these other things like the worship of angels and asceticism and all sorts of um, other spiritual practices, and what they were doing was, was taking away from the centrality and the importance of Jesus. Look at Colossians 2 and verse 8. Paul says this, through verse 10, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the element, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he's saying it's about Jesus. Everything's about him. It's about him. It's about him. It's about him. He's the one from whom all the fullness of God flows grace into our lives. That's why the mission of our church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. The fullness of everything that we have, anything we'd ever hope to be, is him. It's all him. Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So notice the connection. In Christ is all of the fullness and you have been filled in him. In fact, if you want to do a great study this week, take your Bible or take a concordance and just search for all the references in the New Testament with this phrase, in him, in him. You will be amazed at the spiritual reality of what it means to be in Christ. From the fullness of Christ, we have redemption in Him. The fullness of Jesus means that we have been given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So He is full of all wisdom and all knowledge. Meaning, pursuing the understanding of who He is becomes the fountainhead for us to become like Him. So from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So that's the, the fullness of Jesus. He's full of all wisdom. He's full of divine authority. He's full of grace and truth. He's full of glory. He's full of redemption. And he's fully God. So that's what it means for him to be full. So then secondly, how does that connect to our fullness in Jesus? So if, if that's what it means for him to be full, and there's other things we could say about that, but 
What does it mean for us to have this fullness in him? Let me show you how this plays out. There's a connection between his fullness and our fullness. And then as we make this connection, I want you to realize where we're going with this, is that if he is full of all of these things, and if we are full of all of these things, then we ought to take the world and fill the world with the grace that we've been given. That's the point. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. A couple books over to the left, book of Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul talks about what we have received because of our relationship with Christ. And what he says is that we receive spiritual blessings. Verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, notice what comes next, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So get this, in Christ, we are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That means that your experience, if you've received Christ, in the new heaven and the new earth, is that you're going to experience all of the beauty of unadulterated experiential presence of your God. He's holy, and there you are in his presence, and everything that you experience in that glorified state with unadulterated fellowship with him and never-ending reality, you're only there because Christ won that for you. You're not there because of your good works. You're not there because you were a catch. You're not there because somehow God knew that you would endure to the end. You're only there because of God's mercy poured out you through Christ. We receive spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we receive spiritual blessings because of Jesus. So out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Notice that. He blessed you in the beloved. He blessed you in Jesus. He poured out grace upon you because of him. It's no wonder that we sing about Jesus. No wonder that we exalt the name of Jesus. It's no wonder that all of heaven circles around the reality of Jesus. You know why? Because without him we have nothing. But with him we have everything. Secondly, From his fullness, we've also received the grace of the Spirit. Jesus has not left us without assurance. He's he's not left us without a guarantee that his promise of redemption is indeed real. John 3 tells us that he gives us the Spirit without measure. And that the Spirit, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is the down payment of our future inheritance. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 13. In him, there it is again, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Jesus promised that he wouldn't leave us alone, and as a result, he sends his spirit to both guarantee the coming Redemption that will be fully realized in glorification when we are made to be like him. 
And he also gives us this spirit who comforts us, who helps us, who indwells us, who convicts us of sin, who assures us, who instructs us, and empowers us. It's the Spirit of God that when, literally, when I'm speaking and you're reading in the Bible and something I say fits with the Scriptures and something goes off inside of your heart to say, you know what, that's true and that works in my life and here's how. That's not you. That's the Spirit of the living God. It's not me. It is the Spirit of the living God. It is the intersection of God's Word and God's Spirit in your life. That's how life change happens. And listen to me. That is a, a grace gift from the Lord. It's the Spirit who helps us to win the battle with sin. Walk in the Spirit and you not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the Spirit who assures us that indeed we are the children of God. Romans 8, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are given the Spirit. Third, we are also, this grace, we are given spiritual gifts. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 7. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according, notice this, to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, we share in His victory. He won the victory and we get to show up at the party. Or, he's our victor and we share in the spoils of war. Every single person in this room who's a follower of Jesus has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. In some cases, it's, it's already natural abilities that you had prior to coming to Christ and now they're spirit controlled and God accentuates them and use them for God's glory. Well, once you use for his glory, now God uses for his own. In other cases, when you come to faith in Christ, suddenly now you have new abilities, new gifts, things that, that you wouldn't have ever thought that you do before, and now God is, is using them, and you can see the way in which God uses you. He works in and through you. It is the supernatural reality of the presence of the Spirit when God works through you and things happen. So, parents, you're, you're giving your kids instruction, and, and after a bad day, you're sitting down with them and sharing with them God's truth, and suddenly the light bulb goes off in your kid's head, and they're like, yeah, that's right, Mom. You are smart, and the Bible is true, and I'm a wicked, awful sinner, and I'll never do that again. Please forgive me. And you're like, hallelujah, Jesus showed up, right? <laughs> or if you're a counselor, and you open in God's Word, and you say something, and the person leaves, and a week later they come back and say, you know what, when we were talking last week, you said this, and it just struck me, and God used it. And, and you think, did I say that? Did I say that? You don't even remember. And yet God uses those things. I mean, right now, my, my wife is teaching a kindergarten Sunday school, like 70 kids. She homeschools our kids all week long and then still serves on a Sunday morning. And she's crazy, but you know what? She loves it. And God gifts her. She can take kindergartners and they sit on the edge of her seat while she teaches them biblical truth. That freaks me out. I'm, I'm more scared of kindergartners than I am of this room right here. I'm like, get me out. Glue, craft, scissors. Oh, I'm out of here, right? No way. I couldn't do that, but she can. And God uses her. And God uses you. And you need to realize that those gifts that God has given you are powerful grace gifts from the Spirit to be used for His glory and for His honor. Those gifts were not meant to sit inactive. Those gifts were meant to be used. And they're part of God's grace. Fourth, the Bible also says that part of the beauty of this is that we can grow into the fullness of Christ. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 12, the purpose of all of this is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For what reason? Until we attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look at that. That's the goal. 
What, what's happening right here, right now? What is my goal? What is the goal of Sunday morning? What's the goal of ABFs and, and small groups? What's the goal of our youth ministry? Any aspect of teaching, the goal is to help you become more and more like the image of Christ. Or as the text says, that you could grow into maturity, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So when you see His fullness, it's not just about Him, it's about who you want to be like. It's about becoming more and more like Him. It means that incrementally and over time that you can see in real and tangible ways that you look more like Jesus than you did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. And when you look at the trajectory of your life, that there's a pattern of increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus. His fullness welcomes you to become more fully like Him. So, since you've come to faith in Christ, those of you who have, have you changed? My guess is, in probably not as much as you'd like to, but don't you think differently about life? You could stand up and give testimony of the way in which your life has changed and how different you are now because of your relationship with Jesus, some of you have marriages that have been brought back. You have addictions that are no longer a part of your life. You're generous in ways that you never would have been before. And you need to know all of that is not because of you. All of that is the overflow of the fullness of Christ where out of His overflow He has given grace upon grace upon grace to you that you have become incrementally more and more like Him. Fifth, Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that we are then filled with all the fullness of God. This fullness theme is all over the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And here's the goal. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You might say, Mark, what does all the fullness of God mean? I have no idea. I looked it up at a lot of commentaries. No one really knows. Our best guess is this, is there is an aspect of who and what God is that He wants to fill the earth. There is more that He wants to do in your life. There's more that He wants to do in your family. There's more that He wants to do in your workplace, in the neighborhood, in the world, and in the universe. And He wants believers to be filled with all the fullness of what God wants to do. God is on a mission, and He invites us to be a part of what it is that He is doing, and therefore He fills us with all the fullness of His Son so we can fill all of the earth with the fullness of his glory the reality is is that you have been given if you are a follower of jesus you've been given the greatest thing in all the world god rescued you in christ you were crucified you were buried with him you were raised with him you were made alive with him you were forgiven in him you have been given promises in him everything you have in life is because of him the breath in your body is because of him everything you have is something that you have received from him 
the very clothes on your body, the home that you live in, the children that you have, the relationships you have around you, the career that God has put you in, the home that he placed you in, even in the midst of all the brokenness of the world, there are still great and wonderful things that God has given you. Your intellect, your ability to think and reason, the ways in which God has made your personality, all of those things were not something that you did. They were all gifts. And that is why Paul, at the end of the day, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, says, What do you have that you have not received? And the answer is what, church? Let me ask it again. What do you have that you have not received? What's the answer? Nothing. Here's the problem, though. The problem is that somehow we forget that. And that's when our extravagant grace begins to diminish. We start to think, no, it's my time. It's my calendar. This is my house. This is my kids. This is my marriage. This is my money. And as a result, we start to hoard and we get stingy and we begin to not see the world through the lens that God wants us to see that from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. That's why it just makes sense that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the most extravagantly gracious people on the planet because they get the fullness of Christ and they have received grace upon grace. But somehow we, we miss that. So we wanted to give you a very vivid illustration of this. And um, I invite the ushers who are going to help us. You guys go ahead and get your stuff uh, right now. Go grab stuff from Trent. Um, I presented this to the elders, and uh, they approved me to do this. In fact, uh, a couple of them even um, donated the money to be able to make happen what's going to happen next. Um, underneath your seats on the cement are some of you, there's 70 of you, that there's a piece of, um, of tape. It's um, uh, an orange kind of color. So you need to look under your seat, and if you have that color tape, need you to see it, or if it's in a seat next to you that someone's not sitting in, and if you have that tape underneath your seat, I need you to stand right now. So go ahead and stand. If you're colorblind, ask a neighbor. <laughs> All right, good. Ushers, go ahead and come forward and deliver the, uh, the envelopes, please. In the envelopes that we are distributing is a letter from me and um, it explains what we're doing and why you're standing. It also has a card that looks uh, something like this. And inside that envelope is a $100 bill. In each of our services today, we are asking people, if you'll take this challenge and take this mission, you now have been given a grace gift. You came to church not expecting you get $100. Maybe hoping you would. But, <laughs> but now you've received a gift. And here's our charge to you. Our vision is that our people would go out into the community and you, having been given this gift, would believe in the providence of God. He's given you this resource because someone else in the community needs it. And we're going to charge you and trust you and ask you to go out in the world and say, all right, God, who do I bless? Who do I meet this need and then, as you do, give them this card, tell them the story of God's grace in your life and the fact that you were given this gift, and so you want to just express the extravagant grace of God into the world. Imagine what it would be like if 20, 210 people, 70 in each of our service, fan all over the city this week and are blessing people with the extravagant grace of God. Think they'll send a message a little bit to some people? 
For that matter, the rest of you who aren't standing or didn't uh, receive an envelope, we'd like you to even dream and pray about doing the same thing. As you leave today, you'll receive uh, one of these cards. And maybe in line at Starbucks, you need to buy someone else's coffee. Or maybe you just need to go take a meal to a neighbor and say, you know, God just led me to be to, to, to do this for you. God's just blessed us with, with so much grace. I just want to be able to give grace out. And then whenever you do this, in some way, we'd like you to share your story with ex- an extravagant grace. So you can kind of see how it is that God does this work in our community and in our world. Some of you, the reason that you're here today is because there's someone else in the community that in 24 hours you're going to meet and you're God's agent to be able to bless them with the grace that you've been blessed with. You get that? You're not here in the world just to live. You're here to be conduits of extravagant grace. So those of you who are standing, you've been given a gift. So use it. We trust you. Use it well for God and for his glory. Thank you. You can be seated. Church, listen to me. The world understands and values people who live this way, even if they don't understand the gospel. Listen, the world values people who live this way, even if they don't understand the gospel. So we got to be the kind of people understanding the gospel who live this way. So the world sees this and values it. I'm calling you today to be like Jesus, who was full of grace and poured out grace into your life and mine, and we of all people who have been the recipients of this grace ought to be gracious with our time, our calendar, our money. College Park, I want you going out into the world today and bringing extravagant grace to a world that desperately needs it. As you leave today, you'll all receive one of those cards. And my hope and prayer is there'll be 4,000 evidences of God's grace in our community this week. What a statement it would make about the gospel. Father, thank you for this reminder of having the fullness of Jesus result in grace being poured through us to other people. And so, bless us as a church as we look at our world through different eyes this week. Help us to pour out the grace of Jesus into a broken and hurting world. And Father, even someone who may be here today who's hurting and The reason they're here today is to receive grace. Even as we leave and as people pray for one another, would you let them receive the kind of grace that they're in need of? So we thank you for the beauty of what it means to receive the fullness of grace from Jesus. And we ask this in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you, College Park. Be gracious. I love you. Take care.